If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's episode, we will talk to WNBA player Imani McGee Stafford about her passion for poetry and the critical role writing and creativity played in overcoming childhood trauma. And we'll also break down Steph Curry's new Hollywood deal, which suddenly increases the pressure for teammate Kevin Durant to finally step up and make my my script for Thunderstruck 2, The Reckoning. (laughs) (laughs) But I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago, and joining me on the line this week, let's start also in Chicago. He is downtown. I am uptown, if by uptown you mean uh, an hour and a half away in the suburbs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he is a a respected, feared, trusted, highly regarded, national award-winning PR representative and uh, mainstay of the sports world, it is Adam <laughs> Willard. That is for damn sure. Hold on, let me pour myself a drink. <laughs> Holding down the fort in our Brooklyn bureau, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Gareth, um, any any notes that you'd give K- KD on uh, on Thunderstruck? I I can't say this, but I. Man, I wish I had saved this tweet, but like there was a tweet when it came out earlier this year that Apple was doing a biopic on or biopic? Brad, you were the movie critic. What is it? I would always I would always say biopic. I a biopic is, is sounds uh completely alien to me. Biopic is incorporates two non-existent words, so I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but um so Anyway, Apple announced they were doing a Kevin Durant biopic, and they were calling it Swagger. And somebody was, someone tweeted, they were just like, calling a Kevin Durant film Swagger is like calling a Derrick Rose biopic, I have cartilage in my knees and respect for women. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, like, calling a Derrick, a Derrick Rose biopic, like, ankles or knees or, you know, <laughs> right. or whatever. Um, I'm going to play tonight. <laughs> well, look, we've got a lot of basketball talk on the show. Let's not spoil it all on uh, on KD's uh, highly regarded uh, film career. Because right now, we're going to take the open of the show and make it wide open. Anything in or around the sports world that is not sports is fair game. And guys, I want to I want to start with some news that Golden State Warriors superstar guard Steph Curry has signed a a production deal uh, for I think both movies and television projects uh, to come. And video games and VR. Well, hey, first things first. Congrats on not spreading yourself too thin by jumping 
also into some other some other realm of entertainment. He's sticking to the core four, which is always a good place <laughs> to start in Hollywood. Um, Quadruple threat. But look, you know, there, there was a bunch of news about this, and, and you guys know. Look, we we take this on Just Not Sports a lot more seriously than the other guys who are scoffing at it. We were we were sending some texts around, and we were saying, look, let, let's uh, let's uh, let's not hold anything back, Steph. Steph's got the coin. Uh, he's he's got the uh, he's got the uh, the name recognition. He's got the pedigree. Uh, and Brad, we got the content. Yeah, and we got that content. So we're gonna pitch our best ideas, and by best, I mean what we came up with the fastest. <laughs> hey, Matt Groening got the Simpsons made on a cock with a drawing on a cocktail napkin when he didn't want to sell. Life and Hell to James L. Brooks. So let's some of the best ideas happen on the fly. Yes, consider us in full cocktail napkin mode. Uh, who wants to start? Do you guys want me to start? Uh, sure. I, I'll, oh, go ahead. I'll take this. Oh, hey, Gareth, Gareth, please, please. Uh, you've been called in first. We're still scribbling notes on our napkins. You're already through the door. Okay, Steph, look, I, ha- I couldn't help but notice when I was reading about this deal in Variety that you are looking to cover the world of film and entertainment, video games, and VR. So you're going to need something with that sort of scope. Now, this is a funny time in sports. Mickey Loomis is the general manager not just of the New Orleans Saints, but also the New Orleans Pelicans. Aaron Rodgers showed up at a Milwaukee Bucks game last week as a now part owner of the team. Crossover in sports has never been bigger. Uh, With that in mind, I want to present to you an idea that for unanimous entertainment can cover all of your various properties. And that is the unanimous crossover universe. So Avengers Age of Ultron is coming out this weekend, bringing to with this and one other film, you will be bringing to a close phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) They have earned $15 billion, Steph and Sony. And Sony, I watched the trailer for Venom today, and I think you need a better universe, guys. Really? I liked Uh, it. That trailer was hot garbage, bro. Uh, Let's not try to get into the pitch. Adam, hold on. Wait, real quick. Adam, how did did Tom Hardy say, I I created the worst voice in a superhero movie ever, ever, and be like, nope, I can do worse? All right, all right, guys. All right, continue. Look, I, I love Tom Hardy, Sony execs. I love him. You cast the right guy, but something went wrong in script development, pronunciation of symbiotes, uh, English, English, American accents that make him sound not tough at all. It's playing a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Exactly. Also, Tom Hardy is an objectively beautiful man. And he says in the trailer, I know how to blend in. Uh, bro. <laughs> like, you are, you are being looked at in every room you've ever walked in. Not Even with those shoulders, sir. Yeah, he, he, blend, he blends in like Giannis in that taco shop after their, their win when he couldn't get to the seat the other day. Like, all right, close your pitch. And, anyway. and Gareth, Gareth, are you pitching directly to him? I feel yeah. like we're shark tanking. Yeah, wh- <laughs> Wait, what's the idea? I'm pitching... Okay, it is the... Guys, Steph, Sony, Marvel's coming to an end of their phase. There's going to be an opening in the universe universe. 
So I present to you the unanimous crossover universe where you will bring in all the biggest players or superheroes from all across the various sports in the world for a three-phase attack that can be brought into cinemas, into your home, into video gaming consoles, and into theme park rides and virtual reality experiences. They all will come together to form a... Think of it like... You've got Steph, you've got KD, you've got Aaron Rodgers, you've got Gronk, you've got LeBron, you've got Mike Trout, you've got Chris Bryant, you've Mike, got some guys who play hockey. Mike Trout? You know, <laughs> oh, Mike Trout drinks Mike's secret stuff, bro. Like, come on, we can do this. <laughs> they will all come together to, fe- to defeat the villains from across the universe in their various sports, helping each other out. They will also form a super team like the Avengers, like Voltron for purposes of this pitch. We're going to call that an all-star team working title. (laughs) Okay. All right. right. So the all-stars one word working title will come together to defeat the bad athletes in the galaxy. Phase one is the four major sports culminating in Ball Jam, the battle for Moron Mountain, where we will then soak in and bring into this universe the entire universes of all four major sports, Space Jam with the Moron Mountain fight, and Rock and Jock, shout out Bill Bellamy, friend of the pod. (laughs) That will end phase one of the UCU. Phase two will open it up to summer Olympic sports and soccer, with individual films on the new athletes and culminating in All-Stars team, one word, working title, The Dream, as they will travel back in time to face and then join forces with the 1992 Dream Team in Barcelona, thus bringing time travel into the UCU. They will also rewrite history by staging a rap battle for the 12th and final spot on the team, bringing Shaq over Leitner, adding Superman, and getting the DCU involved. Brad, what say you to that? Look, man, after hearing most of this pitch, I'm just not surprised that our show (laughs) remains independent. (laughs) We'll wait till phase three, the Winter Olympics. It will take place in a final battle on Mars where it is cold. You know what, Gareth? You pulled the ultimate upset. I was sitting here thinking he can't make this any less marketable, but damn, bam, Winter Olympics. (laughs) Just wait. The The final phase in the UCU... We'll end with All Stars, working title, all one word, Ultimate, Running Cool. And it will culminate as the All Stars, working title, all one word, is saved by the Jamaican bobsled team, bringing that <laughs> into the UCU what? in a final content culmination. You said culminate five times and we're not done. <laughs> you can't say culminate over and over again and not end this. <laughs> we are. That is the end of the pitch. If you would like $15 billion, I think it's there for the taking. <laughs> uh, you, Adam, uh, I'm going to jump in and go next because I'm taking things in a... Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you say Wait. to that pitch? Yeah, do we get feet? Yeah. Okay. I want to see... Go for it, Adam. I need, to see, I need to see it storyboarded first so I can fully grasp the brilliance, but I like the concept. Uh, I have a few notes that we might want to <laughs> overuse of the word culminate. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I, the 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 one piece of that that I love 
is going back in time and swapping Leitner with Shaq and then setting that off on like an alternate universe that creates all this like awesome like rap battle esque stuff. That that was solid, man. I I might just jump straight there. <laughs> so go right to phase two, the Summer Olympics battle for Barcelona. Yeah, dude, you get like you get like old Barkley playing himself, and then like Andy Circus playing young Barkley, like totally CGI'd up, you know, like just motion capture. I, I think you got you got yourself like, you know, you got yourself a, a a potential franchise right there with the Dream Team. Good luck with those Olympic rights, though. Unanimous can get any rights they want. I mean, this is Sony; they're holding on to Spider Man. All right, I'm jumping into. Are we gonna keep the Shark Shark Tank format? We're pitching straight to Steph. Mine's gonna be a lot yeah, tighter. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I uh, yes. Okay. Can I tell you a sad fact, though? I wanted to go first because I was convinced that that was going to be one of the other ideas. <laughs> oh, oh, no. That's, a, that's adorable. <laughs> no. All right. Look, Steph, you, you've been through the hard part of your day. Okay. That, that pitch from Gareth. But I'm going to make life a lot easier because you want to focus on family-friendly content. And I'm going to give you a vehicle that not only is going to uh, turn you into a household name, and a uh, and the the next uh, you know the next Danny Thomas, the next uh, you know icon of 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 home life, but it's also going to give a co-starring role to your wife, your soulmate, Aisha Curry, and and set you up for not just huge money now, but syndication money until you are old and gray and way out of the league. And that is a reboot of the 90s sitcom Step by Step, only called Steph by Steph. Here we go. Steph and Aisha play themselves. But instead of meeting on vacation and each having three kids from another union, they inherit kids from a long lost family relative who like died in a plane crash, like party of five style. Uh-huh. And then our sitcom follows these guys as they, Steph is actually trying to get his NBA career. You know, I don't want to say off the ground. I feel like he's had an okay start, but he's trying to reach that next level. You know, Aisha is launching her, you know, she's trying to be the next Oprah and then hilarity. All these kids come in and here's what's even better. Okay. NBA cameos every week. Oh, Draymond pops in for an episode. Steve Kerr, uh, Kevin Durant, <laughs> Draymond's here. All these, uh, yeah, all these other dudes get in there. Maybe season two we get a baby, which which you know we we can age five years for season three and four. Uh, this is going to be totes adorbs. It's going to make Steph the family friendly king, and I'm talking old school laugh tracks. I'm talking theme song from Reba. You know, Steph, it's time to cross over, man. Roseanne has showed us red state <laughs> red state sitcoms are all they the rage. TV, yo. They watch TV in the red state. <laughs> we are going all ins, step by step. Tune in on 7 o'clock on Fridays here on ABC, TJF. Hmm. I'd watch that. Here's my only question. Uh, you mentioned something about a long tail of residuals and syndication money. That money seems to have dried up a lot in as compared to how it used to be in the days of Roseanne 1.0, 
Seinfeld, Friends, etc. Why would I go with this against something like an entire cinematic universe where I could make fifteen <laughs> billion dollars? Um, that's a great question. Uh, excuse me, I must use the restroom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done debating step by step. It's you know what? It's it's kind of a take it or leave it. There ain't there ain't a whole lot of mystery wrapped up in in that premise. Adam, uh, Adam, give us your pitch for Steph. I don't know that the this this is more practical than it is whimsical and maybe not as creative, but I think we've got a solid idea. I want to start with a little bit of background. Are you guys familiar with how Under Armour stole Steph from Nike? Who he was with at the time? Uh, yes, like they they showed him a PowerPoint, I'm not. right? <laughs> yeah. So so the story. So there's like a lot of there are a lot of idols. factors, but when we talk about the pitch in the room in 2013, Nike, who was representing Steph at the time, pitched him to keep him. Uh, and this is it's not as simple as this, but in summary, the pitch included a slide that had Kevin Durant's name on it. And one of the executives in the room referred to Stefan as Stefan. And that was enough for Del Curry, Steph's dad in the room, to stop listening. Uh, There were some other factors involved, but eventually uh, Steph signed with Under Armour and the rest is history. So, is that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, so people make mistakes in presentations. I think I cringe every time I'm in the middle of a presentation and I catch a typo that maybe nobody else in the room notices, but it throws your concentration off and it can be enough to lose the audience's attention. And I think that process of creating that presentation all the way through the pitch is really interesting. We've seen shows like that. There's a show called, I believe it was called The Pitch, if it's still on. Um, We've seen Shark Tank. This is an athlete-centric idea. So the concept I'm pitching is very simple. It's called Steal the Deal. Each week, we see an athlete who is pitched by an existing endorser and also by a rival brand or upstart. We see Hmm. the presentation process from each team's, the pitch, and finally, the decision made by the athlete in conjunction with with a panel of expert athletes, including Steph himself. That is Steal the Deal. Hey, Adam, I like it, but I want to amend my pitch because as soon as you said Stefan, it reminded me that much like Urkel, <laughs> in, in Steph oh. by Steph, there's going to be a special machine that turns Steph into his alter ego, but this time Stefan is the nerdy non-jock. Uh, where's my money? Where's my money? <laughs> Now, okay, so two things here. Number one, Brad, that does make your idea more interesting because then you're getting into more, I don't know, meme cultural relevance. Maybe there's some merchandising rights there around the Stefan Urkel crossover. Um, Adam, that's a really solid idea. Would would Steph be able to keep all the IP that comes his way? I don't see why not. Sure. Now, Having worked in marketing, I can't imagine any two brands who would actually participate in this show, which is, uh, which is problematic. But the concept—if you could get—if <laughs> you could get the companies to agree to participate and have their flaws shown uh, on national TV, I think it works. So, look, great—you know, 
two great pitches. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> cul- culminating now in uh, Steph, who is a listener, uh, hit us up, man. Let us know. Steph, you could hit us up on, on our Gmail, on our Twitter, on our Beam. Uh, let us know what uh you know which one which direction you want to go <laughs> actually uh Steph, i'd like to take my pitch off the table and suggest a podcast network <laughs> have you ever seen how much money squarespace is spending in this space <laughs> yeah me hello fresh me, hello me fresh undies. Is killing it um all that right one mattress company all right time to move on Steph. you have our number Right now, I want to go to a really cool interview we got to do recently with uh, the WNBA's Imani McGee Stafford. You know her from her time at the University of Texas. Uh, She now plays for the Atlanta Dream. Uh, She's got a really amazing story. Uh, She was someone who dealt with childhood trauma growing up and, uh, you know, has very publicly talked about battles with mental health, with depression, uh, suicide attempts. She's not only someone who has been an advocate for mental health issues in sports, she is also a really, really talented poet. Uh, ESPN and other outlets like USA Today have covered her uh, foray into poetry over the past few years and, and, and dabbling with slam poetry. And when we get into all that, but we also talk a little bit deeper about her inspirations, her style of poetry. It's a chance for Gareth to flex his his uh, his seldom used poet muscles on this show. So it was it was a lot of fun, uh, and I think also just a really good examination of the ways that uh, she is moving forward with her life and how art and poetry has really enabled and empowered her along the way. So stick around. I think you'll really enjoy it. And then after that, we will be back to distract you. So I want to go to a quote that I heard from you in, in a feature story, um, you know, that, that I saw on your life and, and your experience with poetry and, where you said, poetry is like air, I can't live without it. And I thought that was a really beautiful sentiment. I just wonder if you could expand on that for us and help us understand just the, the critical role that poetry has played uh, in your life. Um, poetry kind of occupies so many spaces for me. Um, first and foremost, when I was younger and kind of very depressed and going through so much growing up, being living in an abusive household, Um, I didn't know how to kind of articulate what I was going through and I wasn't good at having meaningful conversation, but if I wrote something down, everybody wanted to read it. Everybody wanted to see what I was talking about, see what I was writing. So it quickly became a story, um, of getting people to pay attention. And your backstory, I mean, I, I think a lot of our um, our listeners are probably aware of it, but if you wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind just asking a question or two about it, because you, you talk about, um, you know, your own history of abuse when you were a child and how poetry helped you express um, feelings that I, I think I've heard you characterize it as, as you shifted into a mode of, of, of strength and, and thinking of yourself as a survivor and someone who's moved beyond these things, that that being able to deal with the complicated emotions that you had through this art artistic expression was really valuable, correct? Definitely. Um, so I grew up in an abusive household um, by no fault of my parents, just kind of the hands we were dealt. Um, I was sexually abused, neglected growing up. 
which forced me to be very depressed um, for reasons I did not, I weren't able to, I wasn't able to really comprehend until I got older um, and kind of got a better understanding of mental health, what sexual abuse was, what healthy relationships were, et cetera. Um, but during that time, poetry was kind of my outlet. And the older I got, the more it became a way of me learning how to use my voice and figuring out that my voice was power um, and helping kind of remove myself from isolation. I discovered the poetry community around my senior year of high school, freshman year of college, and walking into a space where people were so openly vulnerable, so willing to be just a human and nothing else, um, despite the many labels and signifiers and kind of separators that society gives us, people mm. of all different walks of life, and were willing to come into this space and just give themselves and connect on sheer human emotion, on shared experience. And I never really experienced that. And it gave me kind of a sense of home, a sense of willingness to share my story as well. And the first poem I shared about my abuse was my freshman year of college. And a friend of mine's mother came up to me afterwards and was like, you just told my story. and I've never said it out loud before. Wow. Isolated as I felt, as alone as I felt, as alone as I thought these, these experiences were. So many people have gone through it before me and still are here. There's a great, like, I don't know, I think, I feel like poetry and um, mental health uh, are really intertwined going back as far as like Emily Dickinson and so many others throughout the years. There's a lot of different art forms you could have painted, you could have sung, but for whatever reason, you um, are working in this tradition of confessional poetry and dealing with your own experiences and mental health in a really serious way. And so I'm just curious, what do you think was it about poetry that attracted you and that you, it, it seems like such a natural fit for you that it's like air. Um, I actually was a singer before I kind of discovered poetry. I started, I wrote my mm. first poem around like 12 or 13, but everybody in my family sings. Um, so I used to write songs. I kind of just wrote a poem and I was like, I'm done with this music thing. Like the poetry, <laughs> poetry just felt right. And also there isn't any rules to poetry. Um, with music, you know, like you have to sound good. One, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, but with poetry, it's kind of a free for all. There is, while there's standard poetry, there's, you know, like there's science and there's form. And there's all these different versions of what it can look like. There's also the ability to make it look like whatever feels right to you. There's also this big world of slam poetry of people that don't necessarily fit in boxes performing and giving their all and people re resonating with that. Yeah. So you mentioned the world of slam poetry. How did look, you're a competitive person. You you're a basketball player. How do you make an art form like poetry competitive? Uh, so I did slam poetry when I first got into um, performance poetry my freshman year. Maybe it was like my sophomore year of college, something in there. I started doing slam poetry. Uh, and it, it's like competition for artsy people. Um, I actually don't <laughs> like slam poetry anymore. Um, I appreciate the art form and I can go participate, but I don't want to do it for myself. And I think it's because I come from such a co competitive lifestyle. Everything in my life is a competition. So I don't really want that in my artwork, but I think that it, it serves purpose and it kind of, the purpose of slam poetry was to get an audience to the poetry world in this day and age. Um, 
And I think it served that. It's given kind of given poetry a new life for the younger generation. But it isn't my favorite just because I, I have competition in every other aspect of my life. <laughs> It was fun to see you. I, I saw this ESPN feature where you were, you know, you were talking about performance. You were doing a lot of it, and it, it's interesting to hear you talk about shifting away from that. And I, I am curious how you felt about the, um, how you felt about what writing for the stage uh, versus writing for, uh, you know, the the page did to the overall sort of creative process. Like, how would you approach? Uh, writing uh, for being on stage as opposed to just, uh, you know, doing something for yourself? Um, it definitely is a difference. And I didn't, I don't think I knew that when I first began um, because I definitely write for the page. I am a writer for the page girl. That's through and through. <laughs> um, and it changes. And I remember kind of learning that the hard way when, when I was on my youth poetry team, I had a piece that was very moving, very important, but we chose to perform the piece that would score better um, mm. from from the the um, my teammate who had been in this realm more than me and was very good at performing um, as opposed to me. I was new at it. And even now my performance is, is subpar to say the best because I'm just not, I don't do it for the theatrics. So um, I, I think it's two types of um, poets and it is not necessarily one that's better than the other. You know, it's just a different um, means of delivering, but there's definitely a difference. Uh, and it's, it's the difference of having to reread a poem three different times and being able to see a different meaning as opposed to being able to see it visually and feel it and hear it and get something from it that way. Yeah, you just mentioned being able to read a poem in different ways and finding different meanings in it. Like, is that sort of, as someone who does work on the page, is that sort of ambiguity something you're working towards? Like, um, how to balance, I think one of the greatest challenges of doing personal confessional work is how to tell your own story, but then make it a universal experience. Um, how do you, how do you do with that search working on the page? Um, for me, I have certain pieces that I probably will never publish or share. They're like for me, like the, I wrote this piece cause I needed to get it out. Um, and I needed to, sh like, I needed to kind of make sure this moment is memorialized in some way, this emotion, mm -hmm. this feeling, whatever the case may be. And I don't think I'll ever share it because it's really just about me and it's about what I'm going through at this moment. Um, and I've, for pieces that I've had like that, that I did want to share, I've changed them to make them a little bit more ambiguous, like you said, uh, to not be so specific, um, but I think there's a difference for writing for yourself and writing for an audience. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And it's about being a poet for like, for me, being a poet is, it's just a coping mechanism. It's something that helps me get through my day-to-day -day life. And then on the other hand, there's me being a poet, being an author. This is something that I do. This is the work that I care about. Um, like mm -hmm. with my book, I've had, I probably have three or four books enough in terms of work, but I didn't think that was for the public. I didn't think that was either strong enough, good enough, relevant enough for me to publish. Yeah. Um, how would you say your style has matured over the past few years? Especially, you know, I, I guess kind of leaning into what you said about you as an author. Um, how do you feel like you're developing and, and, and where would you find the most differences now between uh, what you're working on versus five years ago or so? 
Um, I think the first difference is the pain. Uh, most of my work when I was coming up and when I was younger came from pain. So it was all very dark. Um, my father used to say when I would read a poem, it was, it's so well written, but very morbid. That was like his favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the beauty in my progression now is that everything doesn't have to be the end of the world. Everything doesn't have to be depressing and morbid and somber. Um, I have pieces that are uplifting. I have pieces about the good part of my life, about the love and the and the last and those moments. So I think the evolution of me as a human and as I mature, so does my work. So last week, Brad and I were talking leading into this. I happened to be reading about uh, Anne Sexton, uh, the this poet from the 60s. I don't know if you know her work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, she was one of the early confessional poets. She wrote a lot about mental health and suicide attempts and very personal work. Like she was known for kind of, uh, she wrote about menstruation and like for at the time that was a big thing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. She won the Pulitzer prize and then ended up killing herself. And part of what I was reading about was just that she never found a way after she found success to move her work away from sort of these confessions and the darkness that had gotten her into it. And so I think, I don't know, that sort of evolution you're describing seems to be um, a really necessary thing for not just, uh, I don't know, like to put it curtly, like your survival, but also like this relationship between mental health and poetry, I think is worth examining. And like, how has the acceptance of mental health helps you as a poet you know it seems less edgy than it did in the 60s and i think that that's a good thing that would seem to be progress to me um i read a quote um recently it was saying that poet has the poet has the hard work right the poet has to critique what goes on in the social world while still being in it and i think that that's what poets are supposed to do and i feel like as a unit, the poetry row is far more progressive than we are as a society. And we go, the people that are drawn to poetry go for those real conversations. We go for those feelings that we're we're scared to share out loud. We're scared to share with other people. So we go to hear someone else say what I've been thinking. You know, I would imagine that, that uh, people your age would find enormous inspiration and take very seriously the work of contemporary hip hop artists who have you know who have a very lyrical style and who have used the medium uh, to to create some really interesting and compelling work. That said, I do think that there's still, at least I perceive that there's still sort of a push pull between how much of that work is uh, is considered to be part of the larger sort of you know capital P poetry. Uh, so is that me as someone in my 30s uh, looking? too literally at that at that divide whereas someone your age would just never even see it uh or do you still sense that um hip-hop artists are uh are are still striving for full acceptance from the the greater poetry community um i i agree with you um i think that's kind of a critique of hip-hop culture though um of black culture as a whole um is are we are is this culture that we create only accept it when it's when it's now a part of pop culture and everyone mm. thinks it's cool 
or is this culture that we create 24 seven that's a part of our lives accepted 24 seven. Um, and in regards of the poetry, there's a big argument and kind of battle right now uh, between mumble rap as they call it hmm. and the actual lyrical rapper rappers. Right. Do we value that, that work as much as we value the Nas, the J Cole, the Tupac, as opposed to designer, little Yachty, you know, or, or is there a line at all? Is it just entertainment? I would like to say that I'm a snob and I'm only going to download J Cole and not <laughs> only want to hear the real rappers, but in reality, like I'm going to bump little Yachty too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the poetry world of old was very, was very strict about that. was very strict about, we want certain work. We want page poetry. But where we're moving as a society, especially in poetry, is to, is acceptance. Is we want artwork. We want your truth. And if your truth is mumble rap, then that's what we want. <laughs> I don't know. There, like, there's some quote. I think, I think it was Duke Ellington years. Ago. Like when I was in college, I will admit to like having gone down a deep rabbit hole of is rap music poetry and what is the literary value of rap music and. I was talking to a friend of mine about this and he just looked at me and goes, didn't Duke Ellington just say, I don't know, man, if you can feel it, you can feel it. And like, that's sort of all it comes down to. And I was like, but Jesse, I did, I did so much reading on this. And you just, <laughs> you just reduced it down to one stupid quote. That's totally accurate. I really wish you hadn't done that. But yeah. I, 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 that's an interesting debate. Um, that, can I ask like, now that you're out, uh, Brad and I both grew up, uh, our parents worked at universities. Like now that you're out as a professional, like how are you continuing to study and develop your your own poetic work outside of a university setting, which I would think would be really uh, open to it? Um, well, in university, I majored in accounting. I should have majored oh. in English. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should have majored in English. That would have been the easier route to take. But I was not this idealistic when I was in school. Um, I wish I was, but I wasn't. And I was minoring. We didn't have an undergraduate poetry program. We only had English and rhetoric and writing. So I, I almost finished a minor in rhetoric and writing. You went to Texas, right? I did. I went to the University of Texas. So of all those 50,000 people and you have the Ransom Center there and you don't, they don't have a poetry program? So we have one of the best graduate po programs for poetry, um, okay. the Missioner Center for Writing. And they're like one of the most pre 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 prestigious programs. They accept like 10 across five different mediums every year. Um, mm -hmm. But undergraduate wise, we only have, um, we have a, uh, a Cupsy group, which is the College Union um, Poetry Slam Invitational, and they've done good there every year, but we don't have anything education-wise for poetry in undergrad. You know, take some of the money out of the football program and get, make some poetry. <laughs> Isn't that everyone's, everyone's critique? <laughs> <laughs> for folks who are listening to this, where, where would you say would be a good starter for them to... Like, who would you advise, hey, go check out the work of this person or this person? And I would, I would caveat that by, by encouraging you to also think through, uh, you know, especially African-American artists. I mean, you mentioned earlier about how, um, you know, there are pretty strong debates happening about just the nature of black culture and 
and and you know uh, how everyone should be opening their eyes to it and respecting it, you know, for modern times. So I, I would I would love to just skip like who would you consider to be sources of inspiration, but also where would you point the novice uh, in the right direction to sort of broaden their horizons culturally with poetry? So my favorite spoken word artists are obviously of this kind of generation, and I always say go look at Button Poetry, um, their social media their website, and you'll find a plethora of amazing artists, as well as Write About Now, Write, like W-R-I-T-E, Write About Now. Um, they also have amazing artists artists that are highlighted. My favorite, um, Edwin Bodney, Ebony Stewart, Ariana Brown, um, Rudy Francisco. He actually was just on The Tonight Show recently. Uh, he's doing amazing. Javon Johnson. Uh, those are my favorite, like, spoken word poets. And then just old-fashioned, like, page poets. Um, Sylvia Plath, love her. Um, she was probably one of the poets I read growing up, and she probably played to the dark side of poetry the best. Um, hmm. um, Audre Lorde, there we go. Audre Lorde. Um, she's known for her. She's known for one of her, being one of the best poets to critique culture during her time. And I think, like, poets have always been kind of politicized. Um, and Langston Hughes is my favorite poet, like, ever. So. Yeah, he he kind of did the work, man. I think I, I could give, give you guys a little bit of everything to start with. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I got some nice uh, weekend homework here, too. Uh, um, and, you know, since you did accounting, I'm doing my taxes later, so if you can hang in the line, I'll just start reading my forms to <laughs> you and give you some... Uh, give me some suggestions. This is one of those things that I kind of want to like, Brad. I want to speak to you and not, but I, Amani, I'm sorry to ignore our guests in a way, but I also think this is my sort of like plea to you and our listeners. Like I have found that like, like Brad and I are in our late thirties now. We have kids, we have jobs. Like in the last year, I've read more poetry than I have since I was in college taking poet poetry classes. And I find that it's the sort of thing that fits into your life really well in a way that like a 500 page novel might not, but like you can pick up a collection of poetry and dip into it for three or four poems. They won't all impact you the same way, but then you can just sort of sit and chew over them for a day and figure out what you got out of it. And I think it fits into, there's room for poetry in a busy life in a way that there isn't for other forms of art. I will say this, sure. Amani. Uh, Gareth did send me a really long poem over text message recently, and I just replied, new phone, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> but I, his, his point's well taken, and I, I, I do agree. I, I do think as, I've, as, you know, as we get older, we look for inspiration in different forms ba- that, that are built for our lives. So I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, Amani, just, you've given us a lot of time. To, so to close out, let me ask you, I guess... Where do you want to take your ambitions here with, uh, you know, with poetry and art? Because, you know, look, you're you're a professional athlete. Um, you know, you're at the start of a professional career, but you're you're balancing these other ambitions. And I'm just curious where you see it fitting into your into your life. Uh, you know, I guess as again going back to your comment, yes, there's the you know what you produce on a day to day basis for your own mental well being, but there's also you as an author. Um, so where, where would you like to see yourself taking your ambitions with, with, with poetry over the next decade or so? Um, I would love to say, I also did not mention Nikki Giovanni. So Nikki Giovanni, 
But I would love <laughs> to say that I'll become the next Nikki Giovanni something. But I think the beautiful part about art is I don't put it out for success. Um, I put it out to reach my younger self, to reach people that are in the trenches of what I went through and need this work. Um, so hopefully there'll be more there'll be more books to come, more work to come. But I'm currently like working on starting my nonprofit, which I really want to help integrate more art in youth as well as sports. Um, I think that they don't have to be um, mutually exclusive. And I think we kind of put that to children a lot that you have to play sports or you have to be artists. And that doesn't have to be true as evidence by myself. So I would definitely love to get my foundation up and running and work on having a lot of youth programs that talk about the arts as well as sports. And you know, you said you don't do the, the you don't do as much slam and spoken word. I was gonna put you on the spot and ask you to share some work on the show, so I won't I won't do that unless you unless you want to. But where can people follow? Uh, where do you where do you direct people to follow your work or 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 take a look at anything that you that you've decided to share? Um, so my book Notes in the Kia Heartbreak has been out for almost four months now, and you can find that on Amazon.com, Kindle and barsandnoble.com and then I tweet little poems short poems from time to time uh, <laughs> I know we see them I, again I was like maybe maybe if I just put it out there she'll give us a give us a taste <laughs> um, and then yeah I can read you guys a poem I've had things in my phone oh okay yeah look at this um, I'm like I'll read you some short I'll read you the short things that I tweeted this morning okay um, they're all about heartbreak because that's where I'm at in my life right now. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> here, here, like here, you, it's a Sunday morning, and we're like, "Hey, hey why a, don't you, why poet, don't you pour man. your emotions like, out for us?" Yeah, right. Um, but so these are literally like three sentence pieces. So something really small and short. I don't know how to quantify a love that allows me to walk away, but I believed in it. Still do. Never felt something quite as real as I thought you. Ah, oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then my second little short piece, um, every day you are here, like a lingering feeling, like a ghost of what once was. I wonder if you spend your time filling the empty space I left with other women, or are you like me? Does no one seem to be quite worthy of the emptiness I left behind? Oof. Beautiful. I, you know, let me ask you, you, when you put these out there, what kinds of response do you get both from your, you know, your followers and fans, but also from, you know, your fellow athletes? Um, I think I always have an athlete person that like has no clue about this side of me and it like is really taken aback and kind of freaked out. (laughs) Um, And then I have like the people that have followed me since college and they kind of look forward to like my little late night musings and because my Twitter is totally like all jokes all ridiculousness, a little bit of social commentary and seriousness, and then some poetry. Let's say we met at the park today, and I asked you, what, who are you? What are you? What do you do? Would you say you're a basketball player or a poet? Um, if you ask me who I am, I would say I'm a poet. If you ask me what I do, I say basketball. Hmm. That's fascinating. It's a really good answer. That's interesting, yeah. Um, I don't think – I think sports can only take you so far. I think eventually your knees break, your back gives out, whatever the case may be, and you have to put it down. I don't think you can hold that identity for longer than the game allows you to, um, which is also why I think that it's important that we tell kids to dive into the arts as well as sports because it ends eventually while art is a forever thing. 
You know, we've been doing this for a few years now. We're over 100 episodes, and I think that you might have just articulated that this show basically exists in the in the tension between exploring who we are versus what we do. So thank awesome. you. Awesome. Awesome. We will, we will send you royalties when we ever start making money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate what you guys are doing here because it's so important, um, not only for current-day athletes, but the general conversation around athletes, like we're not just athletes. We have so many more interests and there's so much more to us as humans and we have to be allowed to share that without fear of just an athlete. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you look, your, your work is great. Your story is amazing. Uh, we tell everyone, go follow you on Twitter and, and retweet the poetry you share there. And thank you for joining us. I, again, this was an illuminating discussion and we, we wish you nothing but the best. When does your season start? How many, how, how long away are we? Uh, we are about a month away from season. Uh, training camp starts April 29th, and our first games are like the middle of May. So now, are you are you someone who like on those final days? Are you starting to feel like the way I feel on Sunday night when I have to work for the next day? Or do you, are you like ready to get back into it? It's a little fifty fifty because I hate having so much free time because I'm like super type A, but I also like enjoy not having to run every day. So. Yeah, <laughs> playing a little basketball, basketball. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things. And then we tell them, quit doing interesting things. Uh, get back to watching game film. That is ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. Uh, one of the things distracting me was was that song coming out of the uh, our interview with Amani. Uh, that, my friends, is uh, playing a little basketball by Mission Man. Mission Man, a.k.a. Gary Milholland from Oxford, Ohio, my hometown, Garrett's hometown. Uh, Gary reached out. I was like, let's play your tunes on the, on the pod, man. Let's, let's get them out there. So go look him up on Facebook if you want to know more. And, and, and candidly, Gareth, I, it, it kind of leads into my distraction, which is just friends from high school or college that uh, really took a, took a, a nosedive into uh, creative realms. Uh, you know, folks who moved to L.A. to do improv or like Gary, who, who started doing, doing music or, or Ryan Brochure, another friend of ours who's, who's really been plugging away at a country music career. I always get really inspired just seeing people who are like still at it. Uh, perhaps that's because I'm on arguably the lowest rated and 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 z- lowest profitable podcast of all time uh, for the past three years. Uh, so, but uh, but I, you know, I I guess I would ask you like Gareth because you were someone who dabbled in a lot of creative spaces in college, uh, whether it was you know improv or other stuff like that. Like, how many of your friends do you think are are sort of keeping the dream alive or have found ways to? compartmentalize their creativity into their lives despite you know having a day job that's cool like first of all props to gary for still being at it i'm with you on that um 
The best one I have, the best example I have is uh, Mike Zegan or Michael Zegan as he's known. He's um, he's an actor. You've I guarantee you've seen him in things. He was in um, he's The Walking Dead, Girls, and now he is the male co-star of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. And he plays the husband that leaves Miss, the titular character uh, and sets her on the road to comedic path. And he and I in college started a comedy group together uh, called The Sketchies. I named the group. It was a very, it seemed like the funniest name in history in 1997. Uh, I don't know if it's aged that well. Um, or it's as unique and original as it was at the time, but we did sketch comedy and videotape and edited stuff. And I was a founding member. It was founded in our dorm room, Kimball. It still exists at Skidmore College. And so I have the distinction of being one of the founding members of the Sketchies, the person that named the Sketchies. And I was also, and in hindsight, justifiably, the first member kicked out of the Sketchies. So You were kicked um, out of the Sketchies? I was by Mike because I then tried out for a different improv group, the Ad Liberal Artists, and they I found them to be more fun and kind of cooler. So I just started doing too much of that and not being enough of a sketchy and stopped showing up and or I was drinking a lot, not in a bad way, but just in a collegiate way. And long and short of it, they did a show and I didn't show and they had removed me from the credits <laughs> and rightfully so. So, uh, I was pretty obnoxious to Mike as college went along. Um, and then I ran into him in New York when I first moved here, probably about like nine years ago. And it's a, a mutual friend was in town. He had just finished up uh, a cycle on that show. Rescue me about New York firemen, uh, with Dennis Leary and we were at some pizza place and we just kind of buried the hatchet. And I actually really, I, I told him, I was like, I'm really proud of you, man. Like you're really, you're doing it. And he just said, yeah, the key is I just never had a backup plan. And so he huh. just kept auditioning and auditioning and auditioning. And eventually he's just made it as an actor. And so about a year and a half ago, I was doing some voiceover pieces for the NCAA tournament for CBS and we needed somebody with some funny, snarky VO chops. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I got a guy. And so Mike's been doing a bunch of VO work for us for the last couple of years as well. As well. So Fascinating. That, that's awesome, man. I, I also, you know, I just want to remind our listeners, I also do not have a backup plan for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or, or for Joe Reed. <laughs> right. Adam, Joe Reed's got plenty of options. Adam, what's, uh, what's your distraction? I guess my distraction is to have less distractions. It is National Mental Health Awareness Month. Just got to focus on the game, huh, man? Just got to yeah, focus on the game. Well, what I mean is I, I think that um, anxiety, including my own, comes from having a, a, a lot on your plate and being pulled in a lot, a lot of different directions and, some, and a lot of times choosing those directions. I saw an Instagram post recently about anxiety that talked about the brain being like a MacBook with Safari and 40 open windows. 
So huh. my distraction is to try to close some of those windows. Now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean doing less. Uh, it just means focusing and spending the equal amount of time on things that are more important, like helping Brad get guests for this podcast. So uh-huh. uh, similar to uh, uh, to use a different analogy, you might have seen a really fine, fine film starring George Clooney called Up in the Air, where he talks about the idea of the backpack and all the things you load in the backpack that weigh you down. So, gentlemen, I'm just trying to take some things out of that backpack so I can walk a little bit easier. Adam, you do realize that was a metaphor for emotional connection to other humans, right? That he was emptying out of the yeah. back. Is this, are you no. dumping us? Are you ghosting no. us? <laughs> no, not it you. It is with but... that I resign from. Yeah. Yeah. Just... It is with and... that <laughs> I'm out. Wait. <laughs> yeah. And with that, I will be doing my own podcast from now on. <laughs> Goodbye, gentlemen. <laughs> it is called Sports Not Just. It is about injustice in the sports world. <laughs> no, I think Rich Eisen took that already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gareth, uh, distract us here to close out. To culminate. Adam, uh, let's culminate this week's show. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, I, I just want to salute you for that. Uh, I give you a lot of credit for talking about that talking about it publicly and i would just i guess i'll follow up with um i had my typical esoteric distraction ready to go but i will just say that i have been uh trying to meditate every day for the last month or so and i have found that i don't know that i can point to anything and say like it's made me more productive or i'm just firing on all cylinders but uh i definitely know that i am more patient uh, especially with my children. And I can at least, it gives me enough mental space to when they're doing their stuff that annoys you, which is plentiful. Um, I can at least just before I snap at them or get angry, I will, there's something in my head that then says, what's your second thought? And mm-hmm. I can usually go to them with something like a suggestion or explain to them why it's frustrating to me as in my six-year-old who negotiates everything 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 is a negotiation literally and so it's just like i told her tonight i was like hey look if you just didn't negotiate a hundred percent of these decisions maybe 50 i'd pay attention to them i don't pay attention to any of them right now so anyway uh seven minutes a day with my timer eyes closed concentrating on breathing and the best piece of advice I got from a recent uh, lesson in meditation is you're not good enough at it that you'll have no thoughts. When those thoughts inevitably pop up, just say, okay, and get back to it later. Like, don't, mm-hmm. you're not going to be perfect. You haven't been practicing this for years and decades. So, awesome. Process like anything else. All right. Well, time to process the, the end of this podcast that's our show for this week i want to thank imani for coming on a uh, great interview love uh, her sharing her story so candidly and, and also sharing her poetry really good stuff there steph curry unanimous entertainment and sony for having us into pitch that was a really great meeting guys and i look forward to any follow-up class acts class acts uh you know what's funny i, I gave my business card but they, they told me to keep them <laughs> well Assuming we have anyone still listening after those pitches, 
I'd like to shout out uh, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mac, and although I'm trying to empty my backpack, my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. When the drama comes, gunshots go Never been a drug dealer, but I know true killers Criminals and murderers, Pittsburgh stealers Chinatown animals, bears and all bulls No cats in Minnesota that's feared like T-Wolves Dudes carry bats like they play for the Dodgers Detroit to TX like Boy Rogers